The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am delighted to welcome Dr. Daphne Miller. She is a physician, professor of family medicine at the University of California in San Francisco, and a prolific writer. She has a regular column in the Washington Post and is the author of two best-selling books. The first was The Jungle Effect, The Healthiest Diets from Around the World, Why They Work, and How to Make Them Work for You. And the second, which is the one we're going to focus on today, is titled Pharmacology, What Innovative Family Farming Can Teach Us About Health and Healing. And one of the reasons why I specifically wanted to interview Dr. Miller is because she describes herself as part clinician, part ecologist, and part anthropologist. So welcome, Dr. Miller. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Well, I heard you speak at the University of Missouri's Center for Health Policy annual meeting, And I was so taken by your work, and I wanted to have you on to describe a little bit about what led you as a Western-trained physician into this world of anthropology and ecology. I had really done all these years of training and suddenly realized that I was fairly ill-prepared to take care of most of what came through my door as a family doctor. (laughs) and realize that so much of what ails us has to do with things that we're not really taught to manage in our medical training, our connections to our family, our connections to our culture, our connections to our food, our connections to our environment. And that's really what moved me to start to think beyond the four walls of a clinic room and to start to think about our natural environment and our cultural connections and so on and how they impact our health. Well, I loved one of the things you said in Columbia. You said that you chose to work with food because it is one of the few medicines we take three times a day, and it's one of the most effective medicines when used appropriately. And, you know, as a dietitian, I see food as medicine as well, and yet I'm so sad to see it taken for granted. And maybe it's partly because we have so much of it and we're so removed from its production, but as you also mentioned, we are seeing a revolution in getting back to those roots. So you chose to visit seven farms, and I wondered, how did you choose those specific farms? Well, I actually ended up interning on five different farms, but I visited Wendell Berry on his farm in Kentucky, so we could add that in as a sixth. Okay. I really ended up with a very long list of farmers who I thought would be really interesting to work with, both because of the type of farming they did or because of uh, their philosophy. And I called them and had conversations with them. And it's interesting, some farmers were very open to the idea that a family doctor wanted to come and spend time learning from them. And others thought it was a little strange. (laughs) And I ended up going and spending time with the ones where it was clear that they were going to welcome me onto the farm and where there was going to be a great 
synergy and exchange going on and where I, they would offer me valuable lessons that I could bring back to my patients and bring back to my writing. Mm-hmm. So did your visit with Wendell Berry inspire you to seek out specific farms? Like why, for example, did you choose two different kinds of poultry egg farms in Arkansas and a biodynamic farm in Washington? What was it that led you to those specific places? Well, the common denominator of all the farms is that they were farmers who were really thinking outside the box within agriculture. They had sort of rejected the mechanistic approach of just treating the soil as if it were just a petri dish or a substrate and, you know, just growing animals or growing fruits using imports such as, you know, supplements for the soil or pesticides or herbicides or fertilizers. Every farmer that I spent time with had rejected that way of thinking and had turned to a much more holistic model of really thinking of the farm as its own ecosystem, its own universe, and as a place where there were a finite number of resources that needed to be regenerated within the system of that farm. And that very much appealed to me because that was a model that I was wanting to pursue within medicine, this regenerative holistic model. And I felt that by learning from farmers who were healing the earth and raising nutritious animals and plants using this model that they would have a lot to teach me as I was trying to, you know, literally nurture humans, you know, healthy humans and help heal them. Mm -hmm. Well, I found your book impossible to put down once I started going through all of the specific farms. And I'd love to talk about all of them. But with limited time, the one farm that really spoke to me was the winery. And you talk about how this particular farmer stood out. You know, he was in a sea of where many farmers find themselves, where his farmer colleagues were using all of the latest technology. And he stepped back and he said, no, and if we apply these pesticides, we're going to develop resistance. And you reflected upon that approach with how we treat cancer. And I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about that. Yeah, well, each farmer had actually gone through their own series of lessons that had brought them to their more ecological approach. Each one had had a kind of epiphany of their own, which was also interesting. It's not like they each started off thinking sustainably. And with this particular farmer, it was very cute. He was a young farmer, and initially when he was trying to grow his grapes in his vineyard, he discovered that the vineyard was filled with rattlesnakes and he started to kill the rattlesnakes because he couldn't really think of a good use for a rattlesnake. And what started to happen next was that his young vines, his grapevines, started to literally disappear underground because the rattlesnakes were no longer there to keep the gophers and the other rodents in check. And this is when he realized, oh, wow, you know, there's unintended consequences and creatures that I think of as pure evil or as pests might actually have an upside to them. They might also be quite beneficial. And so he started to get very interested in integrated pest management, which is actually something that a lot of 
forward-thinking farmers practice now around the country, which is this idea that you can't just fight back weeds and pests by applying more herbicides and pesticides, but really you have to create an ecology which keeps all the factors on the farm in balance, and you have to create wonderful places for beneficial plants and insects to grow so that they can actually act as a counterbalance to the ones that might be not so beneficial to the farming. And this is called integrated pest management. And he started to do this on his vineyard. He started to do it by planting these native bushes that attract beneficial pests and by having intercropping between the vines so that there were other kinds of plants that would attract insects away from the grapevines and by using a lot of techniques such as leaf stripping and he also had sheep that pulled the weeds away from the vines so that there wasn't as much rot on the vines and so on. And what I write about in the chapter is a group of oncologists who actually started to look at this integrated pest management model and apply it to cancer care because what they were realizing is that our kind of warrior approach to cancer where we try and nuke it out or cut it out or poison it out at all costs really creates the same kind of havoc in our bodies as the pesticides and herbicides create in the field. What happens with cancer when you take this approach often is that there's some residual cells that remain and they really come back with a vengeance and eventually take over just the same way we see in a field with the sort of resistant bugs or weeds. Mm -hmm. And so these oncologists are sort of thinking about integrated cancer management. How can they actually nurture the whole ecology of our bodies and not just attack the cancer cells, but actually think of ways of promoting the beneficial cells, the healthy cells within us, so that they can counterbalance the cancer cells? And how can they create an environment using pH and blood sugar levels and so on that help the healthy cells thrive while keeping the cancer cells at bay? Very much of a radical approach in terms of cancer care, this idea of of really thinking of cancer more as a chronic pest and less as this deadly foe that needs to be obliterated at any cost, even if you kill the patient, you know, in the process. Right. Well, and I recall in looking at how we can apply that healthy environment of the, the grapevines to the individual in, in providing an environment that would create an inhospitable environment for cancer cells, one of the things that you mentioned that is consistent with what you found when you visited indigenous populations around the world is that a really protective diet is one that is plant-based. Is that what you would say has been consistent in terms of what are the few things that bubble up to the top that provide an environment for our bodies as well as our planet that really provides a health-promoting ecosystem and body? Yeah, well, first I'd like to stress that from traveling around the world and seeing many different traditional diets and many different ways that people eat, there is no one healthy diet. There's many different ways to eat healthy. And I would almost say that, you know, if you, as long as you're not eating what we call the standard American diet or sort of the, or what I call the barcode diet, which yeah. is basically everything that you buy with a barcode <laughs> in the supermarket, 
Um, in fact, there's a lot of different ways to eat healthy. But what you just said is absolutely correct, that in most healthy uh, traditional diets, that plants really are sort of the, the foundation of the diet. And there are some cultures that eat more animal products than others. I spent time in northern Iceland, which has a very healthy population, and they eat a fair amount of uh, mutton there. Uh, they also eat a lot of fish, which is great, and probably more animal proteins than, say, the Tarahumara Indians, which is a, in, in Mexico, in Copper Canyon in Mexico, is another culture that I uh, write about in my previous book, The Jungle Effect. But both places do have a lot of very unprocessed plants as the foundation of their diet, or what we like to think of here as as the bottom of the food pyramid, <laughs> you know, right. the things that you're going to eat the most in your week. Mm-hmm. You know, it was funny. You were describing your experience in a supermarket where there were dietitians, and it's really a tough job that these supermarket dietitians have in that they have to promote everything in the store, and yet, as you say, bringing more grocery stores to communities that don't have them isn't going to change the population's diet. What really changes it is having access to these fresh gardens, the community gardens and fresh food that comes from them. And I thought it was interesting, the correlation between this idea of the barcode diet, which is really brilliant, and the struggle that we have in teaching people how to eat well. The grocery stores are not the answer. Well, there are some grocery stores that really, I, you know, I feel I do a, a, an excellent job of trying first and foremost to promote their produce. They do everything under the sun, you know, from making the produce stands right at the entrance to making it so that you can check out only with your produce and not having pushed through all the aisles of soft drinks and candies and crackers and so on. So I I don't want to sort of categorically badmouth grocery stores. But the truth of the matter is that they have many products in there that they have to give, you know, like sort of equal bandwidth or, you know, a shelf space to that are terrible for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's so hard when you go into a grocery store to not push your cart past all these selections and end up, you know, buying more of them than you do of the vegetables that were there at the entrance to the store. I mean, even in the checkout aisle, and I'm not just talking about, you know, grocery stores like Walmart or Costco. I I mean, I'm talking about Whole Foods and, you know, these fancy chains Mm -hmm. as well that we think of as healthier. But, you know, by the time you've gone through the checkout aisle at a Whole Foods, you've had a whole selection of candy bars, a whole selection of cookies, a whole selection of organic sodas, which honestly are no better for you than Coke or Pepsi, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it ends up that you can shop just in a very unhealthy manner. And in fact, you're sort of encouraged to shop in a very unhealthy manner 
when you go into these grocery stores. A farmer's market, on the other hand, of course, they do have their place where they'll sell the little homemade cakes or, you know, but by and large, most of your choices are healthy there. So it's a lot easier to get out of there without having been enticed by the junk. Mm -hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. Daphne Miller. She is a physician, a professor of family medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and the author of two terrific books. The first was The Jungle Effect, about the healthiest diets from around the world, why they work, and how to make them work for you. And her latest book, which we're talking about today, is Pharmacology, What Innovative Family Farming Can Teach Us About Health and Healing. And I should let everybody know that pharmacology is spelled with an F. Dr. Miller, I loved your trip to the Bronx and your work with Karen Washington. She is a real hero in that she greened up vacant lots in an otherwise hard, difficult place in New York. And the reason why I brought this up in relation to the barcode diet and the kinds of things that are available in supermarkets is that I've noticed myself, when I go to a supermarket, I may see my friends in the aisles, but we don't really have the same kind of interaction that we do when we're at a farmer's market. And that's what I saw with the community gardens and the farmer's market that was set up in the Bronx was that a whole community, this whole social network that grew out of it that made us feel good to be part of a larger community sprung forth, and supermarkets just don't deliver that. You are so correct, and in fact, this has actually been studied. Uh, There's some interesting research looking at social interactions in, you know, outdoor food marketplaces versus what happens in your bricks-and-mortar supermarket, and there's all kinds of health-giving exchanges that happen within a farmer's market that you might not even suspect, like, you know, the exchange of recipes for example. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, in a supermarket, you just don't stand there in front of the broccoli display and start talking to other people about how you cook your broccoli. I'm sorry. It just doesn't happen or rarely happens. But in a farmer's market, that's kind of part of the culture, you know, not only to have that exchange with your neighbor, but also with whoever's selling you the food because they grew it and they have a pretty good idea how it tastes good. So, you know, there's that whole information exchange that goes on. There's also just, there tends to be sort of this peer validation of, you know, you're here, I'm here, we're both, we're supporting these farms together, we're part of a community, we really are contributing to way more than just the profits of this grocery store. And there's, you know, the physical exercise that happens because there aren't shopping carts and generally their farmers markets are in places that you can't park right up against so you have to walk a ways to get there you have to lug your fruits and vegetables around you have to walk around from farm stand to farm stand so you know there's there's kind of the exercise part of it too there's sunshine you know getting a little bit of vitamin d mm-hmm. so and you know you tend to turn it more into a family activity you tend to bring your kids you tend to bring your spouse and yeah it's it's kind of like shopping as a party <laughs> exactly i always say it's like having a party where i don't have to clean my house i get to run into all my friends and talk about community problems and solutions 
And uh, it's, it's everything that you described and more. And I wanted to just bring up, you have some research that a woman in Colorado, the Colorado School of Public Health, pointed out. And her work, Dr. Litt, she looked at gardening accomplishing what grocery chains cannot, actually getting people to eat more fruits and vegetables. And this was an epiphany for me because... I have to tell you, you know, I've been a dietitian for 30 years, and part of my mantra has always been to get people to eat more fruits and vegetables, you know, and we haven't been very effective as practitioners. And this was an aha moment because it, it basically said, oh, this is it. This is how to get people to eat more. Have them be involved in some sort of community gardening project, and if not community gardening, then at least having access to these fresh markets. Yeah, what was such a surprise to me about Joe Litt's research was that the groups that she studied were not necessarily growing fruits and vegetables. A lot of the people who ended up eating more fruits and vegetables as a result of becoming involved in community gardening were, in fact, growing inedibles. They were growing tulips and, you know, flowers. Right. <laughs> so it isn't even necessary so much that you grow your own food to increase the amount of fruits and vegetables that you eat. It's more that you just somehow are involved with the growing process and with the soil. Yeah. And by seeing that happen, you become more inspired to eat plants. Yeah. So that for me was was very interesting. Or maybe it's that you hang out more with people who are eating fruits and vegetables, and you swap your tulips for their cucumbers. I don't I don't know. Right. Uh, that wasn't necessarily looked at in her study, but it just the mere act of getting involved in agriculture in some way seems to improve your health. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm very fascinated with the whole. I see it as a frontier in nutrition, and probably you do in medicine as well, and that is this this focus on the microbiome and the similarities between the soil microbes and, the, and our own microbes in our body and the roles that they play. And it seems that we know so little about them, but they seem to hold a key to good health. This is, you know, really one of the the most exciting discoveries, you know, since being able to send man and woman to the moon, I think. We've never as collectively as a society been so completely thrilled about, you know, something as this exploration of our microbiome. And I think part of what is delighting people so much and what has so much caught the collective imagination is that these little creatures have always been within us, <laughs> just just in the same way as the moon has always been there. Um, but we're just discovering it. You know, we're just starting to to venture in there, and we really are just at the beginning of understanding exactly how the microbes in our gut impact our health. But what is very clear is that there's a, a strong connection between the microbes in the places where our food is grown, so in our soil and in our waterways, and the microbes in our own gut. Um, these are not two separate universes. There's a lot of inter-universe or interplanetary communication that goes on. They seem to actually exchange DNA information. And so it turns out that if we treat the microbes in our soil and in our waterways 
well if we care for them using healthy farming practices and healthy environmental practices, then they are much more apt to transfer healthy information to the microbes in our gut, who in turn will transfer that healthy information to our own cells. Mm -hmm. So it really is on a very microscopic level validating what I already knew on an ecological level, which is if we treat our universe well, if we treat our farms well, then we ourselves will be healthy. Mm-hmm. But now we're discovering that on the microbe end as well. Yes, it's so, so exciting. It all marches through. It all matches up. Exactly. You know, we just have a few more minutes, and I wanted to ask you, as a physician, how would you change the medical school curriculum? Hmm, that's an interesting question. I, you know, I, I've come really full circle about medical training because I used to be very militant about the fact that we were training our doctors wrong and that, you know, they needed to have a much more holistic training with much more nutrition and, you know, much more sensibility for how to deal with mind-body issues and social issues. And I have to say that I have actually moved away from that because medical training is only four years long. And we want our doctors to have these core competencies, which are really, you know, basically to be able to recognize very ill patients and to have the sort of foundational skills to deal with people when they are in their most life-threatening states. And then... From there, after that core training, doctors who want to deal in wellness and prevention and that huge gray area between disease and wellness um, can move on and get that as a second level of training. And then your other physicians who want to, you know, spend their life taking out appendices or doing cardiac transplants or what have you can sort of go down that path. And I actually think that the design of medical school to sort of act as the as the common road for those two for those two choices is is pretty good it it gives you a pretty good foundation in illness medicine mm-hmm. in disease medicine but then what we need to do is start to have more secondary trainings and more opportunities for doctors who want to move away from that to move on and practice more wellness medicine or more community-based medicine or more ecological medicine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I, I know in looking back at my own training, I wish that I had had more cross-pollination with agriculture and medicine, and so we could see how all the parts come together. With just a minute left, do you want to leave our listeners with a charge or something that you learned along your path that you're just dying to leave us with? Well, I really encourage everybody to start to look beyond this simple idea of food as medicine, which I feel has really gained traction, but to really start to think of farm as medicine and ecology as a medicine and, you know, parks as medicine and wilderness as medicine and to understand that those are the places, the choices that we make and how we treat these environments how we conserve them, how farmers manage their soil, that those are where the real health choices are being made, the real choices that affect our bodies. 
And it really, if we care about our individual health, we need to venture out there and understand how our food is being made, how our water is being conserved, how our air is being conserved. So really thinking in beyond food is medicine. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Miller, for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to recommend both of Dr. Daphne Miller's books. The first, The Jungle Effect, The Healthiest Diets from Around the World, Why They Work and How to Make Them Work for You. And the second, Pharmacology, What Innovative Family Farming Can Teach Us About Health and Healing. Dr. Miller, thank you so much again for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you.